Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand we might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I'm a director at Brady Ware & Company, a full-service accounting firm based in Dayton, Ohio, with offices in Dayton, Columbus, Ohio, Richmond, Indiana, and Alpharetta, Georgia. Brady, we're sponsoring this podcast, which is being recorded in Atlanta for social distancing protocols. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. If you like this podcast, please subscribe in your favorite podcast aggregator, and please consider leaving a review of the podcast as well. So today's topic is 10 decisions to be made in a trans-pandemic world. And Today is an experiment. Uh, I'm doing something that I have never done before, either on this podcast or another podcast. And I'm, I'm making what's called, I guess some people call it the guru format, in which uh, <clears throat> I don't have a guest today. But rather, I'm going to talk about a, a topic flying solo. And, and also, by the way, this is going to be cross-posted on uh, my, my brand new YouTube channel. It's so new, this is going to be the first piece of content that goes on it. If you do a search for Unblakeable, then you can find the uh, the YouTube channel. Please subscribe, follow all that good stuff. And um, I, I'm I'm making a presentation here that I've already done twice that has been met with um, with a lot of positive feedback. And since the nature of the podcast is in fact about decision making, and the topic is making making decisions in a trans pandemic world. Um, I, I think it's uh, I think it's appropriate to to do this here, so we'll see what happens. Uh, if you guys like it, um, we'll do it more. If you guys hate it, then this will probably be the last time we ever do it, unless we're really we really find something compelling that would want us to go against the uh, the collective wisdom. So uh, I hope you like it. So joining us for today's program is me. I have been the host of the Decision Vision podcast since March of 2019. This is, I believe, podcast recording number 126. Um, we are up to roughly 23 million cumulative downloads, and that number still blows me away, and I can't thank you enough for that. Um, you know, a lot of you people don't, don't know my, you know, my day job at Brady, whereas I'm one of the uh, managers of the business valuation and strategic advisory practice. I don't talk about that a lot because I don't want this podcast to simply be an infomercial. I don't want to do it. You guys don't want to listen to it. But since I have to introduce somebody and I'm the only person on the podcast, that's the, um, that's the introduction. So I'm going to move over now to the slide presentation. And uh, for those of you who are viewing from YouTube, you should now be able to see the actual, uh, the actual presentation. And, you know, I, I use the term trans-pandemic because I think that term is, I think that term is useful. It's not, it's not necessarily my trying to be clever, but, you know, as, as I record this uh, on June 29th, 2021, we're not 
in the pandemic anymore, particularly if we've been vaccinated, but we're certainly not out of it, right? I think the main, I think only the most optimistic people think that we've left the pandemic behind, but I do think that we're in an optimistic scenario relative to a year ago and that we can at least see the, the end of the forest, even if we haven't made it out of the woods yet. And, and I think in a way that actually makes this, I think it makes decision-making more difficult because um, when you're in that trans pandemic or trans anything stage, everything is so fluid. The, the, the environment that in which we make a decision today may very well not be at all the same as the environment that we face three months from now, when and if that's the point in which we are then in a post-pandemic uh, world. And so this is my attempt to try to make sense of some of the things that have gone on uh, really over the past 18 months now. It's hard, hard to believe it's been 18 months, but over the past 18 months since, um, since the pandemic hit uh, the United States and most of the rest of the world, and, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's just my take on the decisions that have to be made. And, and you may agree or disagree. In fact, many of you will probably disagree quite strongly. But if at least I make you think about it or I present you with some new information, you know, hopefully you will find that helpful regardless of whether you agree with the conclusions. So some disclaimers I always add on any presentation that I do. At the end of the day, if you act on any of these things, it's your own risk. Um, I assume that my audience is full is is comprised of grown-ups and capable of making your own decisions. Um, you know, of course, I'm speaking in generalities. You know, there are going there are going to be entire college courses that will be taught simply um, around the history of the pandemic in the United States or the Western world or China. That's going to happen. That's outside the scope of a one-hour monologue here. So it means that if you make a decision based on something I present here, you don't get to sue me in case things don't pan out. Uh, you know, the nature of decisions too is you can you can make the right decision. Um, that doesn't mean you're guaranteed you're guaranteed success. Um, nothing in here should be construed as a legal opinion of any kind. I'm not a lawyer, never been to law school. The closest I've ever come is that I'm a really big fan of Boston Legal because I'm in the tank for William Shatner. But that's about it. And by the way, as a as a a special bonus at absolutely no additional cost to you. Um, if you find any spelling or grammar mistakes in this presentation, you may keep them. So last year was a pretty fun year, wasn't it? You know, we had a global pandemic. We had political upheaval on an unprecedented scale, at least in most of our lifetimes. We have initiated a conversation about race that, is unlike anything we've seen, I think, since the 1960s, which predates me. I was born in 1970. Did anybody forget about murder hornets? You know, that that was going to be a thing for a while, but I don't think anybody, I don't think that turned out to be the big thing that it was supposed to be. But, you know, they were coming. And then if things couldn't get worse, couldn't get any worse, Tom Brady wins the seventh Super Bowl. Right. So I guess it goes to show you the more things change, the more they stay the same. And I, I look, I, I say this actually as a, as a Patriots fan. I, I think it's great that Tom Brady won a seventh Super Bowl. But I understand if you're the rest of the league and you're tired of, of Tom Brady being scorched earth on the NFL since 2000. I understand if you're getting tired of it. And, and definitely in, in, in the ATL, people are tired of it. Not only did not only did he orchestrate the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history against the Falcons, but then he comes here two years later and wins the Super Bowl in Atlanta. 
it's it's fair to say most people in Atlanta have had enough of uh, of of one Tom Brady. But you know the world has changed, right? And and so now we have a lot of decisions that we that we have to make. Some of them are urgent, some of them are not as urgent, but they're all important, right? And you know I I love Yogi Berra despite being a, a Red Sox fan, but I mean you've got to appreciate the wisdom and. You know, I think actually a lot of us feel this way. You know, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. I mean, you know, the, the world, the environment is just so uncertain right now that, I mean, what do you do? And, you know, again, I'm I'm really not telling people what to do, but I am telling people the decisions I think people have to make one way or the other. So today's outline, I'm presenting in the form of a mind map. I've recently become familiar with mind maps and I've come to like them much more than outlines. <clears throat> I, I built this using an app called Simple Mind on the Mac. I think it's also available, available for PC. And what I one of the things I love about mind maps is that they're nonlinear. You can think and articulate and organize your thoughts in a nonlinear way, whereas in an outline you're forced to do so, which implies some kind of priority of decisions. And um, I'm not placing any priority of decision except that that a, a linear element or linear characteristic with time forces me to only cover one topic at a time. But I think these are all, frankly, of equal importance, and they mainly differ as to whether or not they're important on a micro level, <clears throat> i.e. your own particular um, circumstances and priorities, and they're important from a broader social perspective. We have decisions that we have to make as a society collectively. So the big question everybody's asking right now is, do we continue work from anywhere? And, you know, companies are, you know, we don't know. I mean, companies are, are bringing people back to the office. They've planned to bring people back to the office. They've then reversed decision to bring people back to the office. You know, there is no best practices. I, you know, we didn't have the internet back when we had the Spanish flu. So you either worked on location, you didn't work. And that, that's all there was to it. We just don't know what best practices are. And if you're, on, if you're looking at this on video, you can see this chart that I've, uh, I've put up uh, that was posted by Eric Somdahl. And the title is, When Will U.S. Workers Return to the Office? Over 50% of employers have a plan. Um, when you look at the chart, you can see very clearly when, when, when the, the items are ranging from we're already returning to the workplace to haven't decided yet, which is 17%. Um, you know, 14% don't know. Um, and you look at this chart, it's pretty much even. All the choices are even all the way around. That means that best practices have not emerged yet. And that is that makes things difficult. We just don't know what best practices are. And they're probably going to vary by industry. They're going to vary by location. They're going to vary by company culture. And they're going to vary by company size. But one thing that we do know, and the, 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 there's an emerging picture here. I happen to have a chart up. Uh, and if you're listening on the podcast, it's called Productivity Better Be, on top, be top of Mind in a Post-Pandemic Hybrid Work World. Uh, this is from Forbes magazine. But the chart clearly shows that when you're looking month by month, um, um, employee productivity is up significantly relative to where it had been the prior year. Um, now that's converging. The latter half of 19, the latter half of 2020 are sort of converging a little bit. 
um, because I think we're, we were actually seeing the leading edge of a digital transformation at that time. It was just, it sort of got overshadowed by the pandemic. But, you know, the overall data is pretty clear that people are, people do appear to be more productive working from someplace outside, outside of the office. But it is complex. Um, people are more productive. And according to this chart, succeeding with remote work from Gallup.com, workers are more productive, but they're also more stressed. They're also more worried. Um, and so that speaks to whether or not whether or not work from home is truly a long-term viable solution. I don't think we're going to know the answer to that until schools reopen en masse and daycare comes back. I suspect, but I do not know, that much of the stress revolves around having to juggle childcare, in some cases elder care, with managing your normal daily life. Because the infrastructure that we've had that enables us women mostly to work simply was taken away from us. And, and I can tell you, as, as a person who works from home and, and was engaged in, frankly, household chores and did participate in homeschooling, even though I did less than my wife, even that amount added to a significant level of stress and um, uh, did, did make things hard. And like I said, I, I didn't even do the lion's share. I, I participated where, where I could and where Cordelia thought that I wouldn't hopelessly screw things up. Um, but the, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, um, you know, people are, people are stressed to be in this environment. So, We'll see what happens once kids go back to school. I think that's going to be a major inflection point going forward. So the second topic is, do we rely, the second decision we have to make is, are we going to continue to rely on video conferencing? You know, I've stepped out now to a few in-person meetings, a few lunches where either the restaurants are basically empty or eating outside, that sort of thing. I'm still being... I'm still being very cautious, even though I'm vaccinated, because I don't want to be patient zero that they find out, oh, the vaccine wasn't as wasn't as um, as resistant to uh, you know the Delta variant or whatever. I, I frankly, I, I'd like somebody else to have that honor. So I'm still being careful. But you know, with all the talk of Zoom fatigue, we still need to we still need to figure out whether or not we want to have these these meetings now. An interesting chart from an article called Open Mic from the National Institutes of Health shows a, a how people participate in Zoom meetings compared to in-person meetings. And, and the data shows that people on Zoom seem to be a little bit less inclined to contribute to a discussion. They seem to be a little less inclined to voice opinions. Um, they seem to be less inclined to be responsive to feedback, less inclined to communicate opinions and much less inclined to maintain an attention span of, of any kind. And this is the sample size of nearly 3,300 people. So, you know, I do think that there's some statistical oomph to this. Now, I think this is because we're, we're going to need to, to see more best practices emerge. And except for contributing to discussion and attention span, these other issues are these other worsenings, if you will, are not terribly strong. So I wouldn't, you know, they could just well be statistical noise, frankly. But there does appear to be a pretty significant reduction in, in contributions and attention spans. Now, 
you might say, well, great, less contributions mean less meeting with more, you know, less meeting with a bunch of hot air. You could certainly take that position. But but the point is, is that, you know, Zoom and video conferencing in general, I think, is still a work in progress in terms of in terms of getting, you know, people to participate. And and the only thing I can tell you that I've learned is 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 that whenever I host a meeting, uh, I require everybody to have their cameras turned on. Um, and if you can't, if you don't have a camera, you can't be in the meeting. And if you're that important to the meeting, we reschedule because the camera is the way that I can tell if you're engaged, paying attention, I get, I get feedback from the audience. And, and I do think that by having a, uh, a non-camera zoom meeting, it frankly defeats the purpose and, and allows for, for suboptimal participation, but that's just me. Um, now, the thing we have to keep in mind is that this is not necessarily a new phenomenon. Um, there, is a, there is an interesting survey that was published by the Harvard Business Review that, that talks about what are employees do, doing during a conference call. This is not a Zoom call. This is just old, oldie-timey telephone conference calls. And for those of you here, you can see on the chart that 65% of people are doing other work. 63% of people are, doing, are sending an email. 55% are eating or making food. <laughs> you know, 25% are playing video games. Even 6% are taking another phone call, which is awesome. So, you know, struggling with attention span during a Zoom call is really not a new phenomenon. And, and maybe this even calls into question whether my, my camera requirement is useful. I, I think it is because, again, if I can see people, I know I can tell if they're I at least have some shot of telling telling if they're engaged or, or or not, but the point is that this is you know this is not a new phenomenon. It's just newly visible. Um, and then you look at the the next chart, which is what are people doing during virtual meetings? That's a 2020 study by uh, Kathy Morris. A survey: most people are distracted during virtual meetings. You know, 60% checking emails, 50% cell phone texting, 52% uh, multitasking, i.e. doing other work, 45% snacking, i.e. eating or making food. You know, my point is, is that what people are doing during virtual meetings uh, are, are doing, have been doing roughly the same thing in roughly the same amounts as, as on a conference call, except it, if it, it appears that there does appear to be a slightly lower percentage of people that are doing something other than participating if they're on, if they're on a virtual meeting, right? The other work tops out at 65% here, tops out at 55. So there may actually be an additional benefit to a Zoom call again, I, and I think it has to do with whether you have the camera on or not. So something to keep in mind. But it does also seem clear that virtual is costing money, you know, People do like to be sold to in person, at least in a lot of industries. I work in tech and I think it's different. I think, you know, a lot of people have no interest in meeting me in person. I've not met over two thirds of my clients in person ever. But again, you know, I'm in tech. I work a lot with millennials and Gen Y, you know, their, their, their comfort zone is virtual relationships. And that, that suits me just fine. Saves me travel time and, and, and so forth. Um, but, you know, this chart from Oxford Economics which is from an article called The Return on Investment of U.S. Business Travel, shows that um, 
you know, manufacturers think they're losing as much as 35 to 40% of their customers because they can't meet them in person. And in education, professional services, I think it's around a third. Finance and real estate is around 20 to 25%. So, you know, people do feel like there's a loss in loss in revenue because they don't have that that touch. And whether that's that's visiting a client in their office, whether it's taking them out to dinner or for cocktails or going to shoot golf or 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 go for for tea and scones or whatever it is that you do, um, uh, you know, people do seem to lose that. So, you know, I have a feeling that I have a feeling that people are going to go back at, at least in terms of you know in terms of reestablishing their their sales vitality. Now the next question is a high level economics question, and I'm I'm putting it I'm po- I'm phrasing it as are we firing the Fed? You know, it's it's intriguing to look at Bitcoin's adoption curve, and you you can see on on the chart here these are charts by that were tweeted out by Dan Held, who I guess is a big Bitcoin guy. I actually I really don't know who he is, but this is given to me by somebody else who does know a lot about Bitcoin. And, you know, we're, if the chart is to be believed, then, you know, Bitcoin, Bitcoin is, is somewhere, is somewhere between an outright novelty and on its way to becoming an established store of value. That's what, that's what uh, SOV means. And MOE on the chart means medium of exchange, meaning that's, it's real money basically. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't think that it's a coincidence that Bitcoin is gaining traction in the middle of a pandemic because we're breaking some laws right now that most people have an economics background like me think should, should never be allowed to happen. And so the first issue is, is we have to figure out what is the real deal with inflation. And um, I'm publishing a couple of charts here from the Wall Street Journal comes from an article called Rising Inflation Looks Less Severe Using Pre-Pandemic Comparisons. And you know, at a high level, I think, I think actually that title is, a, is an apt analysis. Um, and I'd remind everybody that economics is a slow science. It takes us six months to figure out if we're in a recession or if we're out of it. It takes us, uh, in some, some cases, a year or more to figure out if monetary policy is having any impact whatsoever. Um, it's just, you know, it, it, it's, it's just a slow science. And this is why I think the Fed prudently is moving very, very slowly. And the way that I read these charts is that for the most part, the inflation we are seeing is likely simply a dead cat bounce where there'd been so much deflation in sectors prior to the pandemic that we're, we're simply seeing a, a snap back into some kind of morality. And you know, I've seen the memes all over the place. People want to get all over the government because lumber prices suddenly went up. And they did. And then two weeks later, they suddenly went down again, right? And, and you just, you know, wh- however you, you want to view economic policy and the results thereof, you, you just... Anybody who's honest and is knowledgeable about economics can, will tell you that it just it takes months for real cause and effect to be plausibly established. And, and everything else, frankly, is simply statistical noise. So there could be inflation that's out there that's lurking. I'm not saying there's not. There could well be. 
Certainly neoclassical economics would suggest that there should be, but I'm just, I'm, I'm simply advising people not to jump to conclusions because we quite frankly, simply, you know, we don't know yet how much of this is due to, to pent up demand, how much is due to too many dollars chasing too few goods and services to short-term supply chain problems, including labor. We just don't know. And the way the Fed is behaving, where they said they're going to steady the course until 2023, they are telegraphing to you that they don't know either. And so they'd rather not act rather than risk making the problem worse. Now, the thing that's confusing and why a lot of folks are, are sounding the alarm on inflation is because of this chart. It's called annual inflation from inflationdata.com. Um, you know, look it up yourself, but it's a, it's a busy chart, but it's a cool chart because if you look in the orangish bands, that tells you, they, those are indicative of when there's been a, a significantly expansionary monetary policy, quantitative, quantitative easings one, two, and three, <clears throat> and then cash being flushed into the system during coronavirus. And the thing that jumps out with this chart is that is that quantitative easing um, did help did help ameliorate and in some cases prevent deflation? And I think what we learned is that we had a, we had massive deflationary pressures that we didn't appreciate. Ben Bernanke and 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 the Fed did the right thing. Somebody deserves a Nobel Prize in economics for this because you're not supposed to be able to do that. Had we not done that, there would there's no doubt in my mind we would have entered a true economic depression. So, you know, we did learn our lessons from history. But there was a lot of fear, myself included, that we were going to experience hyperinflation. And it really hasn't, it hasn't happened. It sort of peaked at around 4% or so. Um, you know, that's, that's more than we're used to. But we've seen, we, we, there have been lots of years where we've seen more than 4% inflation, right? And so the only time it's even gotten up to 5 is right now in the in, in the trans-pandemic period where there's a combination of loose monetary policy and unprecedented uh, social welfare spending. But even then, you know, the short-term inflation rates like five, is 5%. And, you know, we saw that regularly in the late 1980s and, and early 1990s, um, which until the first Gulf War and some would argue the Bush tax hikes um, we were seeing a pretty strong economy back then. So again, draw your own conclusions. This is my observation, but again, I'd simply caution not to, not to make, have a knee jerk reaction about what's happening in the economy because, you know, again, economics is just a slow science <clears throat> and, you know, it's just, it's not supposed to happen that as, as our debt to GDP ratio increases, um, and you know it's it's over well over now 100% um, that that interest rates are supposed to go down, but that's what's happening. And so what happens is that people you know people like me and those who are much stronger than I in the field of economics, it's time for us to rethink what we thought we knew about economics because um, you know the largest laboratory in the world is simply not producing the results that we thought that we were going to get. And, you know, maybe we need to give modern monetary theory 
a close look. Maybe there are other theories that need to be addressed that we have discarded, need to revisit, or somebody suggested and we haven't paid enough attention to. But the one thing that I can tell you for certain is that the, is that the macroeconomic forces and the data are not behaving the way that neoclassical economics and even monetarist economics that have been the mainstay of American economic policy since the 1930s, at least, they're just not behaving the way they're supposed to. The next question is a fun one. Are we going to require vaccination? The interesting thing is, you know, according to a, a chart that I've got, vaccines, low trust in vaccination, a global crisis, this is from the BBC, is, um, you know, for all the, for all of the, um, the pushback and the reporting on vaccinophobia in the United States, it's, 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 um, you know, there, there are large sections of the world that don't trust the vaccines, even to the level that we do. According to this chart, East Asia, which has pandemics all the time, Western Europe and Eastern Europe that are highly educated populations with, at least in Western Europe, certainly strong healthcare systems, their trust in the vaccine is even less, which may explain how, in spite of centralized medicine uh, architectures in Western Europe, they are lagging far behind in vaccinating the population behind the United States. Um, so it's just kind of interesting to note that, you know, for all the bad rap we give ourselves, um, we're by far not, not the worst in the world at this. But vaccines are, vaccines are special. And the two charts I've put up here, uh, one is called about three in five voters would support COVID-19 vaccination card requirement. And another is called more Americans now see very high preventive health benefits from measles vaccine. <clears throat> As we see a contrast in the chart is that Americans support measles, mumps, rubella vaccines for, for people, for children to attend school but they're not nearly as supportive of requiring a coronavirus vaccine. Um, I don't have a ready explanation for that. I don't have it. Well, not a firm explanation. I suspect a lot of it is because children are typically vaccinated against their will and Americans are not. And, and so, you know, children, most children probably don't even remember when they are vaccinated. I certainly don't. I just have a chart that says that I was, um, and, and so, and so it's not a big deal. It was never really even a choice for them, but in terms of being an adult, you know, we do have a choice and, you know, some of us are afraid of vaccines. So a lot of us are afraid of needles. Um, uh, some of us are afraid of how medical, you know, it's been documented that medical experiments have been conducted by the United States government against sections of the population. Um, it's documented the fact the U S government doesn't deny it. So. Um, but nevertheless, it is interesting how, how we trust certain kinds of vaccines, but we don't trust the vaccine that is right in front of us that is the key to, uh, to conquering the current pandemic. The next question is, are we canceling for good? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting up, you know, a couple of charts in the same source. Cancel Culture in American Politics by a person named Phil Ebersol. And 
what I find really interesting you know, in in this this culture where we no longer debate, we we now, we now cancel people, and we do that because I, I think there's a lot of psychological, I'll put in quotes, advice about removing toxic people from from one's circles, and um, uh, it's gotten easier to do. It's gotten easier to remove people. You just unfriend them. <laughs> um, you know, and I wonder how healthy that, I wonder how healthy that really is. I wonder how, how healthy it is to, to only hang around with people that, that never upset you, that never challenge you, challenge you, that never make you feel uncomfortable. Right. And, and you know, I- interestingly, you know, there's a large section of the population that, that feels like, like they cannot express their, their political opinions. Um, and interestingly enough, the more liberal one is, it appears the more comfortable that you are sharing your political opinion. And that could mean a lot of things. It could mean that as a liberal, you feel like you're somehow supported in society, maybe by the, by the so-called liberal media. Maybe if you're more liberal, you just don't give a darn what other people think. You just sort of say it and that, that's what it is. You know, I, I can only speculate as to what's driving that. But even even you know even liberals feel like um, um, they can't necessarily you know, not all the large large portion of the population twenty three percent still feel like voicing their political opinions puts them in some kind of jeopardy, and then the second chart blows me away, where a significant share of Americans support firing donors to one party or the other, just outright firing them, didn't do anything didn't express an opinion, might be a model worker, doesn't matter. You made a donation, you're out. I think that's, I think that's, that's extremely dangerous. I think it, it makes our political climate much worse rather than better. But, that's, but we're going to have to decide as a, as a, as a society, you know, are we going to rely on cancel as a way to resolve our differences? Um, I hope not. I think there are long-term consequences to that that we can only begin to imagine today, but will will affect us in a generation if we do go that direction. The next the next chart is from a book called Facebook Hate Speech Removal per quarter. Facebook Hate Speech Removal, sorry, per quarter uh, in 2020, and this is from Statista. And you know, Facebook has now gotten involved, gotten in the business of removing hate speech. And you know, I have friends that claim that they've um, they've been banned, they've been muted, they've had their accounts suspended because uh, maybe they they cursed or they cursed at somebody or something. Something that, while not something I would necessarily do, doesn't seem like it rises to the level of hate speech. But Facebook is clearly now getting involved. And I know there's a segment of the population. That um, that wants social media to be held accountable for the things that people say. I don't know about that. You know, do do we really want? You know, for years we've said if you don't like what's on TV, change the channel. And and I think I generally agree with that, except where children are involved. Um, and and then, you know, we parents do need something to do. Um, you know. Am I all that? Am I that comfortable with Facebook intervening with this? I don't know. Um, it's not censorship because uh, only a government can commit an act of censorship. 
Facebook simply will simply would call it editorial, you know, selecting editorial content, just like sending in a letter to the editor of the New York Times. You don't, they don't publish every letter that they receive. And, you know, I, I, I just don't know. I, I think that if you, when you, you know, having lived in places where free, free speech has been and is suppressed, I think it's very dangerous for, it, for free speech to be suppressed, no matter what the source is, whether it's public or private. But again, as a society, we have to decide that. And, you know, this next chart really asks the question, have we done all the canceling we're going to do anyway? Right? And this chart, and our, this chart responds to the question, how many, how many people do you have who support in your, in your friendship circle that support the candidate who is not the person for whom you would vote, basically? And, you know, most people are now saying that that most of their of their close friends only you know, support the candidates that they do. And um, you know, I don't know what to make of that. Should I be concerned? I mean, on one hand, it's natural for people of a like disposition and, a, and an ideological outlook to to hang out with one another. But, you know, in the background of what we've just talked about in terms of canceling, I just you know, I can't help but wonder. You know, is is this simply is this simply more canceling that's that that's going on, and and we're we're missing opportunities to learn through each other. You know, um, there's a concept in philosophy called dialectic materialism. It's actually Marxist in nature, um, and and the, the the notion of dialectic materialism is that is that advancement only comes through conflict. Right there's something called a synthesis, and then that's confronted by. I'm sorry, there's um, thesis that's confronted by antithesis, and then when they collide, they manufacture a synthesis, which is something better that results in the conflict of the two. And uh, I think by canceling, we're missing out on that. Next topic is: Are we going to prepare for the next COVID? Um, this chart that I have. Viral outbreaks, past encounters from health analytics shows very clearly that viral outbreaks of a major nature are becoming more common and not less. I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's related to climate change. I don't know if it's related to increased travel. I don't know if it's related to dumb luck. I, I, I have no idea. But the data is very clear that more that, that we're seeing, or at least we're in a period right now, of more frequent significant viral outbreaks. It, it seems inevitable that another outbreak is going to threaten us again. And when they threaten us, the next chart from uh, uh, Pandemics and History Assessing the Cost shows that the cost of these pandemics is significant. I think that's, I think that's a function of our economy simply being more developed. Um, but nevertheless, Enduring a pandemic carries with it a very significant financial cost. Now, you notice the coronavirus is not on this chart, but never fear because it, it, is, it is calculated now. Um, I, I reviewed data from a, a paper called The Impacts of the Coronavirus in the Economy of the United States, uh, Economics of Disasters and Climate Change, and the estimated cost of coronavirus by the time we're all said and done, is between 3.2 and 4.8 trillion dollars, which represents somewhere between 15 to 22 percent of the gross domestic product of the United States. That's a big number. 
That's a very big number. Um, and as you can see, for those of you who can see on the chart, you, you can see the footnote here that says the U.S. National Academy of Medicine estimates that committing an incremental $4.5 billion annually to be used primarily for strengthening national public health systems, funding research and development and finance and global coordination contingency efforts would significantly reduce the severity of future outbreaks. So, you know, investing $4.5 billion annually to get to, let's just to use around numbers, $4.5 trillion. Right, the break-even point is 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 if you get one pandemic in a thousand years, you break even. To me, that seems like that's a worthwhile that's a worthwhile investment, a pretty good insurance policy. But we will see. We will see. Another question we're going to have to address now is: Are we going to take mental illness seriously? Um. Mental illness, frankly, I don't think has been taken all that seriously in the United States um, up until very recently. You could discriminate against people for it. You could make fun of them. Um, generally speaking, the availability of mental health care is generally inadequate. Health insurance, health insurance policies are paltry at covering it. And even when it is, it's hard to find a psychiatrist or a, a therapist that will actually take health insurance. There are a lot of issues with it, um, but I but I do think that that having to live with the invisible stalker of a global pandemic and the ensuing lockdowns that greatly restrained our freedom of movement and our freedom of activity, frankly, our freedom of pursuit of happiness, we could basically for a lot of us we could basically work all we wanted, but in terms of having fun, forget it. Um, it should not be surprising that it's taken a mental. A, a toll on people's mental health. And from this chart from Statista, pandemic causes spike in anxiety, depression, and depression. Um, uh, the differences between um, January through June of 2019 um, through December of 2020 show a significant increase, really a massive increase of symptoms of anxiety disorder, depressive disorder, or combined anxiety of, or depressive disorder, perhaps as much as 42% of the population in the United States has exhibited some symptoms of, of anxiety or depressive disorder. That is, that is a massive cost being borne by society. And um, right now, we're generally deciding we're willing to live with it. And I guess that's the decision we're going to make as a society. Are we going to live with it? Are we going to... Are we going to Say, you know, um, we can't afford everything and uh, you have to try alternative methods to, to address your, your, your mental anxiety. But before we make that decision, we, want, we need to look at this chart um, measuring the lifetime costs of serious mental illness and the mitigating effects of educational attainment by uh, Seth Seabury and all, uh, et al., I should say. And the chart, the chart shows that if when when people have a serious mental illness, particularly before age twenty five, their life expectancy goes down. Their life, their quality of life, goes down. Um, their ability to function without being classified as disabled goes down, and their years worked goes down which leads to increased medical spending and decreased lifetime earnings, which means people are not 
contributing as much economically into the tax base, Medicare, Medicaid, all that stuff. So it's, it's not just a human cost, but there is a measurable economic cost. And if we don't pay attention to this, it's, um, you know, it's going to get worse and that cost is going to become more painful and more visible. You know, we just have to, we have to decide if, if the benefits outweigh the costs or not. Benefits meaning not paying as much attention to mental health. And the interesting thing, as you can see in the next chart, you know, it's not about money. Our, our health expense, exp- I'm sorry, our health expenditure per capita is higher than just about everybody, everybody else. Number two is about 25% less in terms of health spending per capita than the United States. Now, granted, this is, this is from 2015 data. For the most part, some is 2013, but I don't think it's changed that much in the last six years. This isn't as this is not so much throwing money at the problem as is being thoughtful about how to solve the problem and deploying the money that we are spending in a more meaningful and impactful manner. Do we still want delivery? So e-commerce boomed during COVID, obviously. A lot of stores were closed. Um, and, and the chart that I'm showing is from Xmas 2020 is your e-com startup ready for the biggest delivery season. And, you know, we, we can see that, that during, the, um, during the, the pandemic, at least as of July of last year, e-commerce transactions were up massively. Sports equipment were up 83.4%. That's why you can't get a Peloton. Supermarket e-commerce transactions, Instacart, curbside service is up 66.5%. Um, even home furnishings up 42%. Uh, uh, banking and insurance, media, we've all lived to, we've all learned not to go back to the movie theater or watching Netflix instead. Um, you know, we're used to getting things at home now, but do we want to? Now, the dirty secret is, is we are paying more for this as much as the companies try to hide the incremental cost of delivery from us. It's very much there, and it's going to get worse. The chart chart I have up in front of me now is the hidden cost of food delivery from Tech TechCrunch, and even even outside of the service charges, the tips, um, you know, delivery services for food, and I think for everything else. But I have a chart here for food. Is that you know, delivery companies are marking up the entrees themselves? The, the, the same meal simply costs more to buy the meal itself to have it delivered before even delivery fee than, than in the restaurant. And in, according to the chart, that could be as high as 40.5%. And we've seen this also with Instacart. They mark their stuff up all the time for groceries, Costco delivery, you know, that all happens. Do people want to pick up at the store? Don't know really how much people want to pick up you know, engage or enjoy or uh, utilize, I guess, curbside pickup. According to the 2020 holiday outlook um, from, from PwC, um, you know, home delivery pretty much has stayed the same. People are not picking up orders in store actually as much as they used to, but they're picking up the order outside the store, but only 35% as opposed to 23%. I think the jury is still out. Now I love, pick up, but I know a lot of people just like the, they like the experience of going to the store and looking around and 
seeing stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I do think that that part is here to stay. That part of the shopping experience is here to stay. Now, an interesting question that comes out of all of this is when, when ultimately do the door dashes of the world actually become profitable? It stunned me to learn that these companies are not profitable and they're not even really close. And the question I have is when large portions of the population are forced to be at home and when many, many restaurants have either shut down or they've shut down in-house eating opportunities or dining, uh, in-house dining, if DoorDash can't be profitable now, when is it going to be? I and mean, what are the what are the circumstances under which it's going to be profitable? My, my probably that's going to be, and I read this in a recent Wall Street Journal order, when one or more con- competitors drop out of the market and they can raise their delivery prices. That's what's going to happen. One of these guys is going to get tired of burning through millions and millions of dollars of venture capital. And they're going to fall out of the market. Prices will then reach a true market clearing price. That's when they'll be profitable. But it is going to be a bloodbath in the industry until that happens. The next question is, are we going to act on race? So the protests that started nationwide in wake of the George Floyd murder in um, 2020, starting in Minneapolis, they had an impact on a lot of people. They, of course, had an impact on people of color. I think, at least for a time, they made an impact on white people like, like me. And the chart I have here is support for Black Lives Matter surged during the protest, but is waning among white Americans. And I guess that's not surprising. There's a certain sense of urgency. Um, you know, people of color were protesting all over the place. They were visibly upset as we interacted with them on a, on a commercial and a friendly basis. But, you know, as, as time goes on and the case is basically now over, um, the perpetrator has now been sentenced to jail. So I'm not sure there's much more to do after that for that particular incident. Um, you know, but, but the, the issue still, the issue still remains. And so the question is, are we going to have another conversation about race like we had in the 1960s, or are we going to go back to the way things were circa end of 2020, I'm sorry, 2019. And I'd present for your consideration this graph this infographic, the pandemic's racial disparity from Statista. Um, COVID deaths to people of color, particularly black people, was just out of sight. Um, They were double the rates, more than double the rates of deaths among white people. And um, to me, it's hard to look at that and think, well, we don't have a race problem that needs to be addressed, right? Why are people of color dying at such a, a higher rate? And is that a problem that we want to solve? Some of us are going to argue that's not a problem that we should solve, the government should solve, that people of color should solve themselves. Okay. And I'll just leave it there. But, but it is a problem that's going to have to be addressed. If it's not, 
again, they're far-reaching consequences. There's only so long that that a minority group is going to is going to suffer with this. Um, it's it's not going to be it's not going to be indefinite. And finally, are we going to lure people back to work? We're we going to force them back to work. So the topic of the day now is people are not coming back to the workforce, right? And, and that's the chart that I have from the St. Louis Federal Reserve on uh, unemployment level and job openings shows that that job openings are now, the number of job openings exceeds the number of unemployed people in the United States. Um, why are people not taking them? Well, before I go directly to answering that question, I want, this chart is really important. And if you, if you look at no other chart, look at this one. Um, and it, it also is from the St. Louis Federal Reserve. And it's the labor force participation rate. And the labor force participation rate means the percentage of Americans, of, of adult Americans, who are working or available to work, want to work, are in the labor force. And you'll notice that the, the American labor force has been declining since 2000. And I would argue probably would have started declining before then, except I think people hung on to the workforce during the dot-com boom because they were getting their stock options and during the Y2K remediation effort because people who wanted to retire were the only people who knew enough COBOL to, to, to fix it, basically. And they got scads of money to work another year or two to, uh, to, to fix uh, Y2K vulnerable systems. But since then... Labor force participation has been dropping, particularly since, say, late, since late 2008, 2009. And, um, you know, it recovered a bit. I think it's statistical noise really dropped during the COVID pandemic and has come back a little bit. And I say that because it provides some frame, provides, a, I think, a useful framework around understanding the nature of unemployment and the nature of people pursuing jobs. And that is that we have been running up against a shortage of workers for two decades now. Um, we haven't noticed it for whatever reason, because we've had enough people more or less to take jobs, but that gravy train may have come to an end. Um, but we'll see, like I said, economics is a slow science. And frankly, I don't know the story yet. I don't know whether unemployment benefits are too high and people are kicking back in the extra 300 bucks a month. Um, I, you know, I, I cannot imagine that myself. I cannot imagine $1,200 being meaningful enough to me that I would simply stop working and be on welfare. But I acknowledge I'm not everybody. I just don't know a portion of the population that is. Um, and I do think people have awakened and, and changed priorities and are willing to give up income for a different lifestyle. I think, you know, there's nothing like 600,000 people dying over the course of 18 months to remind people how short and precious life is. And, and I, do think that, I do think that people have, have discovered, you know, they'd, rather, they'd rather, rather live on less and would rather have more of what they expect their lives to be from a personal perspective, spiritual perspective.
And unfortunately, I mean, this is going to remain purely an ideological argument. We're not going to know until two to three months pass after states reduce unemployment benefits, which is happening now. We're not going to know until schools reopen and a lot of kids are going to go back to, you, people aren't going to like me to say this, but I mean, the schools are our form of nationalized daycare, um, like it or not. We, we do have nationalized daycare. We simply use it as an educational instrument. Um, and ideologically, we never pay for it if we call it daycare. So we call it, we call it grade school. Um, and then more of the population will be vaccinated. So with that, that concludes my presentation on 10 decisions to be made in a trans-pandemic world. And uh, as I've said before, if, if, if you like what, um, if, if you like the content that we put on here, you know, let me know, let me know if you like this. And if you want more of it, follow me on LinkedIn for the chart of the day. You may have noticed I'm kind of into the, I'm kind of into charts. And, um, you know, with that, I think we're, I think we're going to be able to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank you all for listening and please let me know what you think of this format. If you like it, we'll do more of it. If you hate it, then we'll probably stop doing it. Um, we'll be exploring a new topic each week, whether I'm doing it or with somebody else. So please tune in so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us that we can help them. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Once again, this is Mike Blake, our sponsor is Bradyware and Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast. 